Good morning. It's in our King and Lord and Savior's name that we gather with joy on the first day of the week to remember once again that on this day, his followers, his disciples, went from a state of utter despair to the exact opposite. We need to remember that every day of the week. If you will, we will be in 2 Corinthians. We'll finish up chapter 2 today. One thing we've learned as we've spent the last two months in the first part of this letter, 2 Corinthians, is that we need to keep track of where Paul has been so that as we read the letter, we know the context. Now, that's easier said than done, as you'll see, but we will keep trying, especially when we see references to the text, in the text, to certain places and events. Chapter 2 began in verses 1 through 4 with Paul continuing to explain why he had changed his plans. This should be um, coming to your ears like, yeah, I think we've heard that every, every Sunday since we started the letter. Well, you're going to continue. This is one of the main reasons that Paul wrote, and he will reference um, this circumstance over and over and over again, including today. He hadn't come to them to stay a while as he had first communicated. In 1 Corinthians, at the end of that letter, in chapter 16. And because he changed his plans, some of the Corinthians had charged him with not telling the truth and being deceitful, vacillating and operating from the flesh and not the spirit. The circumstances of all this led to much discord, especially from one particular person. And we found out in the uh, first four verses of chapter 2, that Paul made a quick out-and-back trip from where he was at that point, Ephesus, to Corinth and back, just to deal with this specific situation. And it was a painful trip. Paul not only made that quick trip, but he also felt he had to write a follow-up letter which he describes here in the first part of chapter 2 as a painful letter. He says in our second Corinthian letter in chapter 2, verse 4, that writing that painful letter was one of the hardest pastoral things he had ever had to do. Now that just right there causes us to stop and go, wow, yeah, it's difficult. He wrote out of, he says, much affliction, and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause them pain, but to let them know the abundant love that he had for them. And because of that short, out-and-back painful trip and that follow-up letter that he calls the painful letter that we don't have, in that letter he must have laid out the discipline necessary for this divisive person who led all the others in making all these strong accusations against Paul, 
Because of that, Paul decided not to return again to Corinth for a while, which seems counterintuitive to us, especially those of us who like to just fix everything immediately. Paul stayed away. He loved them enough to bring their sin to light. That was what was so painful about all this. And they hadn't responded well at first. And he hoped that they would follow through with the discipline he must have laid out for this person. Which the hope was what? That it would result in his genuine repentance. Well, after verse 4 in chapter 2 here, in verses 5 through 11, Paul goes on a short detour, which if you know anything about Paul's letters at all, you know this is a very common common thing he does when he writes. He went on a detour to let us know that the leader of this discord had been disciplined by the whole church and had genuinely repented. So he encourages them and instructs them now in this part of chapter 2 to do what? Letting them know that now they must forgive him and restore him to the fellowship, as hard as that would be. And how do we know that? Because Paul gives us the details of all this later in chapter 7 of this letter, verses 5 through 16. It explains what we read in verses 5 through 11 here in chapter 2. If we see the flow here in chapter 2, we will realize that in verses 12 and 13, part of today's passage, Paul continues to explain to them how he ended up in Macedonia, which is where he's writing this letter we're reading, we're studying from. Now, I get royally confused if I'm not thinking, okay, these Corinthians have already gotten the first letter we call 1 Corinthians, they've already had a painful visit from him when they wanted him to come later or earlier and stay with them for a while. Instead, he had to come and make this visit and try to sort things out with all this discord among people charging him with things that were not true. And then he had to follow that up with this letter that had even more instructions And while he was doing all that, at that point in his ministry, he was in Ephesus. And he was there a long time. And what happened? There was this big riot that threatened his death, and he had to leave. Which is why we're going to read in just a second, he ends up in Troas, which is up up north of Ephesus, kind of on the shore across this little stretch of sea uh, into what is now Europe. But those people didn't look at it like it was Europe. This was just part of the Mediterranean world. And then that's Macedonia, around where Philippi is and some of those cities, which is where he writes this letter from. So he goes back and forth explaining all this, and that's why sometimes we're going, well, wait a minute, where does it say that? And where is he right now? And I'm going to try to keep track of that for us because it is very important as we see what he gets into and what he explains. So, as I read our passage today, I'm going to begin by reading verse 4. 
And then I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, which is our text today. And why am I doing that? Because our text today is a continuation of Paul's thought in verse 4. And that will help us see kind of what he does. If you're able, please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and then I'll read our text, our main text, verses 12 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. This painful letter had followed Paul's painful visit. And the painful letter, which we don't have, had probably been delivered to the Corinthians by Titus. Who then was to meet up with Paul in Troas sometime later to do what? Well, to help Paul, but one of the main things was to report how the Corinthians, what they had done, if anything, about this letter. So, in the meantime, as I explained just a second ago, there was this dangerous riot in Ephesus that convinced Paul to leave earlier than expected. So Paul is continuing his account for the Corinthians of how he finally came to write this letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, from Macedonia. Now, I'm repeating all this because I need to. It's not because I think you need to, but I'm just taking for granted that we all need to. Because it's hard to keep all this straight. Now, we start off in our text today in verses 12 and 13 in Troas. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, was this the first time that Paul had ever been to Troas? Nope. On his second missionary journey, the Lord had made it clear when he was in Troas that he should then cross over the northern Aegean Sea and go to Macedonia. Even though he wanted to go 
eastward, farther into Asia. Do you remember that account? Now on his third missionary journey, once again, Paul is there, preaching the gospel while trying to find Titus. In fact, Paul says that a door was open, listen to this, was open for me in the Lord, in Troas, but his spirit was not at rest because he didn't find his brother Titus there. So put yourself in that situation. He's God's appointed missionary. He's in Troas. He's preaching the gospel, and God is doing things in people's lives. He's looking for Titus, and he can't find him. So even though God has opened this door for people coming to know him through Paul's preaching, his spirit is what? It's not at rest. And when it was obvious Titus was not in Troas, Paul took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, we've got to ask this question because every one of us should be asking it. If Paul had found an opening for the gospel in Troas and was persuaded by the Lord that the Lord had actually provided that opening, why didn't he just stay? How you answer that question says a whole lot about how God wired you. Now, there's a couple of reasons. First, Titus was a member of his missionary team. Who else was? Well, especially Timothy. He had those guys running all over the Mediterranean world when he wasn't with him himself, doing errands, communicating, getting stuff ready. And so Paul had to be very concerned for this guy's safety. What does that tell you about Paul? It says a whole lot that he cared about the people he worked with. And second, when in Troas, Paul was very troubled about how the Corinthian believers might still be responding to that painful visit and letter. He didn't know. Technology was zip then. There was no way for him to know until Titus showed up and reported what had happened. He didn't know if their hearts had turned back to the Lord or if they were rebelling even more. And we can identify with this kind of waiting and not knowing scenario, can we not? That's one of the things that we see in God's grace for us right now. There is so much that we do not know, and we are having to wait in so many ways that are not comfortable. And yet we get to gather. Praise his name. And remember, even though he already in this letter had given the Corinthians instructions on how to forgive and restore the man who did not repent back in verses 5 through 11, he hadn't written the letter yet with what he's writing about right now. He was getting ready to later, not too long from now. But he just now got to Macedonia in his story. He's also telling his story, is he not, of getting to Macedonia 
and he weaves it in and out of the instruction and the teaching that he gives in 2 Corinthians. Now, in the very next verse, in verse 14, just when you think you've got the flow, guess what Paul does now? He launches into thanksgiving and praise, which he does often. He obviously knows as he writes that God did encourage him once he got to Macedonia and did meet up with Titus. He knows that. He's writing the story of what God had already done. And as we noted earlier, we find out in chapter 7 that Titus was bringing Paul an update. But that's Paul's point. Titus was not in Troas to meet up with Paul and give him the update. Before he found Titus with this extremely encouraging report, Paul was still in anguish over his necessary but painful visit and letter. And let's look again at what he said in chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. He writes there, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, is that you? Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by whom? By you, Corinthians. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still the more. At this point, he's yelling in happiness. Can you see how relieved that Paul is here? That's why we say that this letter shows Paul's heart more than any other letter he really he wrote. It's he just comes out everywhere. He's glorifying God in what he heard. This context really helps us understand what Paul also writes in chapter 11, for instance, verse 28. He writes there, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Not just one. (laughs) All the ones that he had founded. And we need to understand this as we read Paul. And as we see here, for a Christian missionary or pastor or elder or anyone who cares about the proclamation of the gospel and the care of Christ, the tension felt between pastoral care and evangelistic concerns is not always easy to discern or resolve. Part of that anguish was sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel in Troas, and seeing people respond, and at the same time, his spirit was so upset. Where's Titus? That he went to Macedonia to look for him. So even when good plans are made and prayed about, there will be times when one or the other may claim a larger concern. Everything is not hunky-dory all the time. 
And for us to expect that is what? Very unrealistic. So at this point in the letter, Paul changes gears again in verse 14. Guess how long this one goes? This change of gears goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 4. That's over six chapters. So stay with me here. He's defended his ministry against the thorniest charges being brought against him and also poured his heart out in the process of explaining his motives in making some hard decisions instead of just saying, well, this is my business with God. They shouldn't be upset about this. I'm not even going to let them know why. He's gone to great lengths to try to explain this. And notice that as he mentions Titus here in verse 13, the joy of hearing Titus's very encouraging news of the Corinthians' positive responses to the hard stuff of Paul's painful visit and letter just sends Paul into this state of relief and absolute wonder at God's grace, which he expresses now in his letter. Now, most of us, well, the Corinthians aren't going to respond, so I've just got to get used to it. I, I, this hurts too much. I don't want to think about them because they've just been a pain, even though I love them to death. Even though I started this church. Even though I was with them for a year and a half. Constantly. But what happened? He saw God do something that most of us wouldn't have expected. But the hope that Paul showed was in the Lord working and not that he could fix everything. I hope you see that. That's one of the main themes. He was always aware that his work as a proclaimer of the gospel was entirely due to God's mercy and grace, God's unmerited favor towards him. And that's one of the biggest lessons that we have to learn in this life. It also seems clear that Paul feels the vindication of his ministry by the God who called him to it and who has worked his grace in the hearts of these, of these believers, these Corinthians. So from here all the way through chapter 7, verse 4, one-third of this letter, Paul shares insights into Christian ministry. Its principles and practice, its nature and its implications. This is the longest treatment of this subject in all of Paul's letters, and it is rich. These chapters are beyond valuable to every Christian at work for the gospel, whether pastor, missionary, Sunday school teacher, elder, deacon, anyone in the body of Christ. It's full of instruction and challenge for any Christian seeking to witness for Christ, no matter where you may be. Now, many of us are aware how valuable Paul's letters to, if I ask you that question, where, where should we go in Paul's writings immediately for instructions about how to lead in the church? And immediately you go, Timothy and Titus. Well, yeah, that's really obvious, true. And we do use those books, but you know what we miss? All you people out there, and there's many of you 
who God is putting on your heart's ways to lead in this church. Anybody that does anything that has any kind of pastoral responsibility, that's what this part of 2 Corinthians is about. Add this to the list. Put it in your curriculum. So how does this large section of 2 Corinthians fit into the whole letter and its purpose? We need to answer that question right here as we start it. Well, it's a picture for a pattern of ministry. It's a picture for a pattern of ministry that serves to both support Paul's own ministry, because the critics never really go completely away, and it shows the inadequacy of the false apostles and deceitful workmen. That's the words Paul uses in chapter 11 for these guys who try to ravage the church for their own gain that he has to really continually deal with. And Paul also calls these kinds of ministers in our passage, what? Verse 17, peddlers of God's word. I like the following title for this last paragraph here in chapter 2. It's, I found a title that somebody said, The Privilege of Apostolic Service, here in verses 14 through 17. Not the burden of apostolic service. Not the glory of apostolic service. What is it? The privilege. The privilege of being called by God to be one of his apostles. I mean, there was only a handful, two handfuls full of these guys ever in history. Verse 14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now Paul's tone immediately turns here from telling the story of his anguish and not yet meeting up with Titus to praising the Lord and thankfulness to God. So even with the suffering that is so common in the t- temporary frustrating circumstances of gospel ministry, and everybody realizes that, don't you? It's never completely over. In this life, we just grow through one after the other. Sometimes there's times of respite, and you better rest up. And then, he, then the calling continues. It goes on and on. Paul still describes, even with the suffering that's so common, the irresistible advance of the gospel here. He obviously has learned that. Paul gives us a picture of a Roman triumphus, or our word is what? Triumph, in which the victorious general, along with all of his soldiers, used to lead in triumphal procession the wretched prisoners of war through the streets of Rome. The best picture I've ever seen of this is really Ben-Hur. You want a visual? In a Roman-controlled city like Corinth, everybody there would immediately recognize the analogy based on the Roman military here. We must not try, though, to make every detail of this procession in 
the picture of it to apply to every detail of the point that Paul is making because it won't work. And the interpretation of what is actually pictured here is actually far from crystal clear. And you're going, what do you mean? Well, hang in there. There's two possible interpretations. And they're quite opposite in nature. The apostles, as well as Christians in general, may be either the exultant soldiers who share in the benefits of Christ's victory, which makes perfect sense because the context is one of expressing thanks to God, or Christians should be willing captives who count it a privilege to be a part of God's triumph. Now, if we took a vote in here right now, say, which one do you think? Most of us would go, well, the first one, of course. Well, down through history, there have been several. Very respect, that's the point. It's all across the board. But interestingly, this second, more counterintuitive interpretation actually is favored by more commentators. All of us were enemies of God and Christ before he conquered us by his grace, is the idea. But once he's conquered us by his grace, is he continuing his victory? Yeah, that's the point. So you see how this can go either way? Now, if you're looking to me to go, yeah, it's all number one or it's all number two, I'm not. Just from what Paul has already said in this letter, his change of direction and plans on this missionary trip would be an example of this second one, the continued progress of the gospel. In other words, in these ways, and we've seen Paul's plans change and riots and already all sorts of stuff that would drive all of us crazy, that God had overruled all those situations for his glory. And that's what he does with our lives in the situations that we think are hopeless or that we've messed up. When writing Philippians, from where? Prison. That always gets me, and I hope it gets you, that Paul recognizes immediately that God ordained that to happen for a reason. He had time to write. That's the silliest one, but it's the biggest one. He also converted... Some of the soldiers, or he was used to convert some of the soldiers who ended up being in the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard. The guys who guarded Caesar. And the gospel spread there. He wasn't whining and in despair in that prison. He recognized, my God is king of kings. This is where I am now. I'm going to do the best I can to make the most of it. And if I get a chance to proclaim the gospel, so be it. 
If they kill me, the Christians already and Christians will rejoice that God had used me when I did and I'll be with him in heaven. If they let me suffer, I'll still get to write all this stuff and encourage all the churches that I'm in anguish about all the time. See how this works? I am so not Paul. But what an example. Oh, by the way, our biggest example is our Savior. Who would have thought that he would accomplish his purpose by dying? Nobody. And what does he say to those Philippians? In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14, he's writing to the Philippians in Macedonia, by the way. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my circumstance, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of all, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Our goal should be to respond to what is thrown at us in our lives in the same way. You can feel the agony and the pain. Your spirit can be not at rest. But if you know this and who is with you, Christ will triumph. And I think aspects of each interpretation here deserve our attention and are true. So my promise is I will look at both more. Maybe that's the point. I don't think you have to come down one way or the other completely on this one. The rest of verse 14 says, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This too was part of the illustration of the victorious ceremonial procession. There was all sorts of... the the kind of plants and flowers that have fragrances that were smashed and, and along this route to give their essence to the crowd and make them rejoice even more. And through the apostles first and those following in the ministry of the gospel, God was spreading far and wide the what? The fragrant knowledge of himself through how? Knowing Christ. That's the point. In verses 15 through the first part of verse 16, we read, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. This good news is, are we convinced of this? is the most attractive message ever to be heard by human ears. But to the person who rejects the gospel, and so rejects Christ, Christ and the message become a what? A nauseating odor. Why? Because the gospel challenges a person's whole way of life. The gospel demands that sin be faced. 
it calls for repentance and a complete reorientation of life. Now, with all that said, do you see why Paul then says the next thing? Why he asks this question? Who is sufficient for such things? What does he mean? He's simply saying, who is up to or equal to such a task of preaching the gospel of Christ or being the aroma of Christ? What does he know that many Americans who profess to be Christians do not know? That you may be smashed. And even if you're smashed because God has called you to be smashed, that aroma that comes from your testimony to the Lord is fringed enough to bring many to Him. And God knows that. Most of us have never even had to think about this. But there are missionaries down through history who have to live with this thought every minute of every day. Paul, of course, recognizes that this work is so holy and the issues surrounding it so solemn that he has to ask this question. After all, he's dealing with the church. And people in a church get all bent out of shape about all sorts of things that don't make any difference, causing division and heartache amongst the the congregation. And Corinth was one of those churches. But Paul knows that the gospel triumphs in all things, and he puts his hope in God working, and God worked in these people. And what else? What about himself? He still, he will never be able to fathom that God had called him the chief of sinners, to do this. Which is the greatest calling on the face of the earth. And it's almost like he tells us, you know, when he messes up in these letters and when he has to regroup and when whatever is happening, he's very honest. But what comes through is the fact that he can't believe that God called him when he was arresting Christians so they could be executed, and he called him to then take the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. And that's what drove him every single minute of every single day. We should expect this question really to be on the heart of every Christian just because that question recognizes an understanding of our own inability to measure up and qualify for God's salvation on our own. This gets our attention, which is how God uses this. Instead here, we're brought to speechlessness and humbleness and worship when we see just a glimpse of God's mercy and grace to us in Christ. And that's the way it should be. We just sang, God be merciful to me. 
We gather for worship together because we recognize the benefits that are ours in Christ that we don't deserve. Do you see that attitude? We work on that attitude for the rest of our lives, but that's the attitude that we gather in. We recognize that we don't deserve a thing, and we look around and we go, nobody did. And he gave this gift to us, so we're here to worship him in thanksgiving and praise. So we revel in that love that is bestowed on us and to us by God's unmerited grace in Jesus. So we answer Paul's question with, who's up to this? No one is up to such a task if they are depending on themselves. The peddlers of God's word that Paul talks about in verse 17. Next, it refers to a distinctly low derogatory term, low type of traitor who would cheat people regularly. Someone who is contemptible because of their attempt to increase their own gain at someone else's expense. The word peddler, this word is only found right here in the New Testament. This is the opposite of speaking out of a sincere heart. He has a horse to sell. Somebody wants it. He says what? Oh, there's nothing wrong. Look, this is a young one. The guy opens the horse's mouth. The teeth are rotted out. The legs are bent up. <laughs> okay? And some people are gullible enough to buy stuff like that. He says that you cannot proclaim the name of Christ if you're in it to get rich yourself or just to get glory from people or to be looked up to by somebody or to be able to claim the world's whatever kind of church and we're the only ones that have it and it's because of me. That makes Paul want to throw up, rightfully so. The one who is up to this task knows that God will use them to accomplish his will, not theirs. And you know what that does? If you get a bunch of people that have that attitude... It is a blessing that you can't even describe. You can actually meet with people to make decisions whose primary thought is, what does God want us to do? And you can be passionate about this idea or that idea or whatever, but everybody, if they're on their knees, God works. He answers. He gives direction, sometimes through the pain of going through that. Sometimes it's more immediate. But everybody is looking to him. That's the point. And he ends this paragraph by describing this Christian in verse 17b, the last part. But as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And as the people who dispense the life-giving remedy for sin, each of us must endeavor to avoid diluting it, or adulterating the gospel message. That's our task. Well, the apostles for them and the pastors and elders and deacons and leaders in Christ's church, the recognition that God had called and commissioned them for this specific task among the brethren also means that they are given the grace to live and work and lead this way. God doesn't call people 
to do certain tasks without giving them the grace to do it or to get through it to accomplish his will. Apply that. If he called you to a relationship in life, are you a husband or a wife? He's given you the grace to be able to come around and trust him in and through it. Has he called you to work somewhere? He's given you the grace to operate there in his power. You can just go on and on and on. So we all learn and speak and rely on and teach and apply and just live for by the word of God, empowered by his spirit, we live for the glory of our King and Savior. As God has gifted each of us differently, but for the same bigger purpose. And that's why Paul spends the next six and a half chapters writing about the ministry. So anybody that's interested in the church, read ahead. Because he just kind of goes with it. There's not point one, A, B, C, D, point two. He just goes with it. And it's fascinating. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, again, we're challenged as we see the heart of your servant, Paul, in the words of this letter and learn so much about you and how you deal with your servants, the ones you saved, the grace that you supply, the world that you've put us into, and what's really important in all of it. Thank you. Thank you for your spirit indwelling each one of us. Thank you that you walk with us through this life and that we can look to you and know we already know the ending. We know that Christ triumphs over all because he defeated death. He paid for our sin. So in this messed up world, we pray that we could be a light and we pray that the fragrance that we give off as your people would bring people to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, otherwise y'all. Amen. You're dismissed.